Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today on the show, I spoke to Stephen Waterhouse, who is the co-founder of Orchid, which uh, does many things, but one of the main things they do is they're uh, providing a decentralized virtual private network uh, to ensure privacy uh, in the Web3 world. Uh, Stephen, uh, his nickname is Seven, and we get into how that came about in the show. Um, but we had a wide-ranging conversation about privacy and about why it's important um, to be vigilant about um, not giving away too much uh, information as, as you're on the internet. Uh, he has a fascinating history. He was at Pantera um, uh, from 2013 to 2016 when uh, blockchain was really sort of taking off in its early days. We uh, discussed what it was like back then. Um, and we talked about, you know, Orchid and what they're doing um, in terms of decentralized uh, physical infrastructure networks and uh, how, um, you know, regulation is sort of affecting the, the global crypto uh, development area and stage right now. Um, so with all that, let's get to the episode and I hope you guys like it. Thank you very much. Hey, Stephen, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I've, I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, I can't wait to pick your brain um, about blockchain and Web3. You've uh, had such an illustrious career and, and done many amazing things. Um, but I do want to start. I, so I was doing my research on you and uh, you were, you know, kind of introduced to me uh, as Stephen Seven Waterhouse. Uh, and so I'm but in my research, I never came across where the nickname came from. So I thought we might start there. Um, wh where did Seven come from? That's a great question. Well, um, it's very simply Stephen No T. You just drop the T. So when you get to <laughs> I was seven. thinking that I, might I, just I, be I, it. I, right? I, I spell, <laughs> it's actually that simple. I spell, I spell my name with a V. So um, it's uh, it's literally Stephen No T. Now, um, the uh, the origins of it was that when we started Orchid back in 2017, uh, there was another co-founder. And at the time, I went by Steve, and he went by Steve. And quite quickly, um, it got to this, you know, like very heated discussions and lots of debates and design work and so on. And I was just like, guys, it's getting really confusing with this whole Steve, Steve thing. Can someone just like pick another name? And uh, another one of our co-founders, Brian, said, you know what? I'm just going to drop one letter, and you can be seven. <laughs> and it had this kind of like funny sort of crypto kind of you know, uh, ring to it. And so I was like, that's actually kind of cool. Um, yeah. How about I just change all my handles? So I changed my email address, my handle, like everything I could find. And um, and then we 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 uh, we got some pretty well known during that year. And uh, and so I got to know a lot of people who introduced myself as seven, and I was giving talks at seven. And then before you know it. Um, the people who knew me, that's what they called me. That's great. There's that trope in journalism where um, when you're out reporting and you come across a dog, you always get the dog's name. So I feel that way about nicknames. I think they're always, usually, hopefully there's a good backstory. And I was really hoping that this had nothing to do with the creepy David Fincher movie, Seven. Did you, ever, <laughs> did you see that? No, no. No? Oh, man. No. It's Brad Pitt. I have one friend to introduce you to. The other one's uh, hiding out somewhere, but... Um, oh, this is her first time on camera in the podcast. Oh, we have she's two beautiful. Um, is it a corgi? Yeah. Or no, it's a Shiba. <laughs> a Shiba. Oh yeah, of course. Of so course. Like, crypto means she just wanted to say hi. So yeah, we, yes. we actually have two Shibas. Um, and, and we have to get her name. Like, what's what was her name? That one's Bella, and we have Naomi in the other end. Okay. Uh, okay. Supermodels. Excellent. <laughs> well, my dog is upstairs because she makes too much noise for when I'm doing recordings. <laughs> so she is banished. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd put her on screen. If you see me reach down, that's what I'm, uh, I'm saying. Hi, yeah. Is she down here? Well, um, so I, you know, uh, in the news today, I thought we might start with something that's a little off, not off topic, but um, Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z, just said that they're, um, they are investing $100 million in Eigenlayer. Uh, it's a Series B. And you guys have funding from from uh, A16Z. I just wondered, um, I, I wondered what your take is on that and Eigenlayer. And, and like, it seems like it's a really kind of potentially foundational um, shift in, in what Ethereum can do. And I was just curious what, um, if you've come across them or what you feel about that project and like what it's adding to the this, this sort of whole uh, Ethereum ecosystem. 
Um, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, uh, we, we did work um, with uh, with Mark and Chris at Andreessen back in the 2017 days, and um, you know, I've stayed in touch uh, even after moving out here. Um, and I have some friends at Eigenlayer. Um, I know the team pretty well. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. The, the, there's uh, this data availability concept. You have um, Celestia, and then you also have Eigenlayer, and you have like different approaches to um, how to architect these kind of um, uh, you know different approaches to um, kind of segmenting how blockchains can be organized and designed. Um, so I think that on the whole, um, this design aspect is an interesting one and a positive one. Um, I think there are some. Uh, some challenges that have come up, and there's, there's sometimes controversial conversation about um, restaking and restaking on top of restaking and uh, ad infinitum. Um, I noticed also that there's like a Athena, I think, came out today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Coming from the financial world, like the idea of leverage is, you know, sometimes a scary thing. And I wondered um, if this restaking of, of what's already staked is, is, strikes you as risky um, or if you think. It, it all can be handled. I mean, time will tell. Um, to think that, that there are, in, in every kind of um, expansion phase um, of, of uh, Web3, crypto, blockchain, pick your favorite name, um, there is uh, there are components that are new components that are, that are introduced um, that uh, often initially can seem quite quite scary and uh, hard to understand. Um, I think restaking is still like not 100% understood yet as to, to the full impact of it and how far it could be um, extended. Um, but Yeah, and just yeah, for it, listeners, it's, 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 like, yeah. you know, what, what this is, is you already stake now in proof of stake on Ethereum, right, to secure the network, but then restaking protocols can allow you to take that ETH and... I guess use it to back another kind of um, protocol or, or um, the security of another uh, yeah. layer. Is that is that a good way of saying it? Let's go. We're looking at it. Yeah, I guess it's essentially recursively um, providing security um, by providing your collateral, which is the stake teeth in that case, um, yeah. to that network, and uh, and then there can be rewards on top of the existing staking that you've got. Um, yeah. To the extent that this there's a new. Uh, Stablecoin from Ethina, um, uh, backed by um, I think it's Dragonfly and uh, and also Arthur Hayes and some people um, in that crew who are promising a twenty seven percent yield stablecoin. Mm. Um, and they, they, they then go to great lengths to explain that it's not actually a stablecoin; it's more of a structured product. But um, it, it does have echoes of uh, of Terra, and <laughs> yeah. people are getting like you know, terrified by uh, these ideas that suddenly were barely out of the woods and we're offering these kind of products again. I think there are some, some significant differences there, but I, again, I think a lot of these things are poorly understood. And if, um, if sort of well-educated people in the space are finding some of these things challenging to understand, then you can be sure that, uh, you know, sort of the, the average person who's just getting in, the kind of more like retail person is told that they're going to have this kind of yield, um, they may not understand exactly what they're getting into and what the risks are. I think that's when things get dangerous in crypto, of course. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, like you said, I can't believe that we're going to go through that cycle again so soon. And I hope um, I hope we don't. Well, it's, always, it's always different each time around. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but yeah. Um, well, I'd like to go back... Um, I, I, into your life, I know you you went to Cambridge, and that's where you um, got your engineering degrees. Um, did you grow up in England? Was that home for you? Yeah, I was born in uh, the northeast of England, uh, Newcastle. My parents are from Manchester. Um, we moved to the southeast uh, when I was young, when I was eight years old, and then um, quite near Cambridge, actually. And then um, from an early age, I just had this ambition to initially play rugby at Cambridge because I was a big okay. rugby player back then. And then um, uh, that didn't work out so well, so I started rowing, so I rowed for the university um, mm. and did lots of other sports. And then I uh, did my degree there, stuck around for a master's degree in speech recognition and language processing, and then um, uh, eventually did a PhD uh, specializing in uh, deep learning neural networks for speech recognition. Um, and the architecture I 
I picked was something that's being used today, which is called the Mixers of Experts, uh, which is used by Mixtral um, for their uh, uh, LLM. That's cool. Um, what college were you in? Initially Fitzwilliam, and then I switched to Jesus for my master's and PhD. Okay. Yeah, my brother went there. He was in uh, Darwin. Yeah. Uh, which, um Yeah. I, I yeah, love that campus. That. It's so gorgeous. The cam. That's very pretty. Punting on the cam was... It's place. It's whole, whole it's whole, yeah, whole it's whole an amazing, amazing spot. Um, so I have to ask, I'm a football fan, a Premier League fan. You, you said Newcastle, Manchester, uh, any teams, or were you a rugby guy, like you said? I, I really wasn't much of a football fan, I have to say. Um, I used to like watching England play, um, but um, I was always a bit too busy actually doing sports to be such a huge fan of things. Okay. Sorry about yeah, that. I, <laughs> like most Americans, I played soccer till I was about seven or eight and then switched right. to other sports. But I've, I've grown to love watching it as an adult. So, um, I'm a Liverpool supporter, just in case anyone uh, hasn't heard that before. Um, <laughs> And so, did you all did you gravitate easily towards engineering? Was that just something? Did you like? Did you always like figuring out how things work, or, or kind of getting in there and 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 seeing you know how systems are, are put together? What, what was it about engineering you think that that attracted you? Um, I mean, I think it was a little bit of bias from my dad because he was an engineer. He was an electronic engineer before the work kind of electronic engineers, like he worked on valves and transistors. And so there's a lot of inspiration there. Um, and, um, and he was pretty hardcore in the sense that he would say, you know, there's, there's you know, any other job doesn't really, isn't really a job. <laughs> so he, he was pretty dogmatic, but, but fortunately for him and for me, I actually really found, uh, the subject really interesting, um, and, um, gravitated quite quickly towards it. Uh, did he ever like take you to work or did he explain what he was doing to you? Oh, I mean, he was working on all sorts of crazy stuff. He was working on uh, nuclear power plant control systems and you know, like big um, uh, lots of radar technology and different things. Um, but um, and then ironically, he actually worked at uh, GCHQ for a little while, um, which is you know, the US spy technology yeah. company. Okay. <laughs> Agency rather. <laughs> Which is ironic given some of the work I ended up doing. <laughs> right. Kind of on the other end of the scale there, aren't you? Um, yeah, my dad was also, he's an electrical engineer. He worked for uh, JPL here in Los Angeles and yeah. worked on spacecrafts and uh, designed the... The funny part of the GCHQ conversation would be when I would ask him about something and then he'd like ask me what year it was. I'm like, oh, and I was like, whatever. And he's like... He's like, okay, yeah, I can talk about that now. Yeah. <laughs> so each of these things, I guess, had like time periods yeah. where he was yeah. not, not, not supposed to talk about things. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah. He was very diligent about keeping going with them. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so uh, another thing that impressed me about your resume was that you not only were aware of crypto um, and blockchain in 2013, but you were part of Pantera Capital uh, with Dan Moorhead, where you guys were actively investing at that stage. Um did you, so were you, were you right there kind of when Bitcoin came out and the white paper and everything? Was that something that just like came across your radar immediately? Uh, well, that was back in 2008. Um, no, I actually completely missed it back then. I didn't, uh, I, I, some people like to pretend they knew about it. Uh -huh. I, didn't, I didn't, I think I'd read a white article or heard something here and there. Um, I was focusing on different technologies. I'd, I'd been involved in many things. So after AI, um, I moved into uh, kind of like those, like it was a dot com, so everyone was doing a dot com of some kind. Um, yeah. But then after that, in the early 2000s, I started working on uh, distributed um, systems, first with Nutella, and then, uh, which is file sharing technology. Um, we built uh, some friends, I, I joined a company which was building a distributed search engine, um, and we sold that to Sun Microsystems. And then at Sun, I built a distributed storage system. And then a few years later, I started getting into intellectual, intellectual property. Um, so then I worked on uh, a company uh, which we took public in 2011 that was uh, fighting patent trolls um, mm -hmm. by, uh, by working actively in that market. And so through 2008 to 2012, I was busy building a startup and taking it public. And so it wasn't until um, 2012, uh, I was part of a, a small uh, venture fund uh, again, focusing on IP, 
um, that we uh, we merged into Fortress Investment Group. And then I met Dan Moorhead. Um, actually, later met Dan, but initially met Pete Brigger and um, Mike Novogratz. And uh, I got very interested in the idea of uh, building some kind of investment um, product around Bitcoin. Um, my interest was very much on the venture side of things. Um, uh, Pete and Dan were friends um, from college. And so uh, Pete brought Dan in. And then uh, over the summer, we were sort of continuing to work on this as, as, a, as a Fortress product project. Um, and then in uh, September, a couple of things happened. <laughs> One, the Silk Road got um, hit mm -hmm. by the FBI. And so mm -hmm. suddenly this this thing that was already pretty sketchy was uh, was even more sketchy. Um, so Fortress naturally decided this wasn't a project for them, but uh, they did invest in Pantera and Dan spun it out and I joined as a partner um, and worked with him for about three and a half years until mid-2016. Um, yeah. Decided I wanted That's to have another crack at uh, the startup world um, after investing for a few years. Um, and then it was later that I started my next next phase of my career. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say you were working on distributed systems but prior to kind of finding blockchain. Do you, was that something that really appealed to you right off the bat? Was the distributed nature of like the Bitcoin blockchain? Yeah, so so some of the things that were happening in the early 2000s um, may sound familiar. Like we had uh, people working on peer-to-peer -peer computing, like distributed computing across a wide area network, right? So there's things like popular power. There was distributed search, which we were working on. Um, obviously, there was file sharing. That was, that was a big part of things. And sure. uh, the file sharing, the, the challenge was always like, um, for various reasons, most of which were copyright violation reasons, the, the challenge was like, how do you build something which you can't shut down? Um, and But inherent in a lot of these systems was... Um, Issues around uh, kind of verifiability, how do you prove things, the, the, the lack of any kind of real currency in the system other than you know, creating something. And there were attempts at this like DigiCash and right. the ideas of HashCash. And I, I knew these systems from just being around them for many years. Uh, like I stayed plugged into what was happening. And then when I saw Bitcoin, I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. They, they actually like figured out so many things that were... Mm -hmm. Um, unsolved problems and merged a lot of different ideas together and obviously came up with many, many new ideas. Um, so that was my first thought. I was like, oh, it's like peer-to-peer -peer and it works. Um, this yeah. could be really interesting. And I immediately started thinking through all the different ideas and applications that had been you know, kicking around for many years. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure a lot of people realize, but like you said, most of what Bitcoin did was just kind of, or Satoshi, whoever, you know, they brought existing things together in a way that hadn't been done before, and then it worked. Um, there wasn't... Yeah, so it was a very elegant um, synthesis of, of other ideas. Um, yeah. And, and, and proof of work had been something that had been um, proposed in different domains, but not in that specific way. Right. Um, yeah, was it um, Dvork? Uh, there was a woman who had, I think, helped pioneer proof of work. Uh, and I think some... Proposals were using it to try to get rid of email spam. <laughs> um, exactly. But yeah, I think that was uh, Goon Sire. Okay, and, and I would love to hear more about what, what that time was like in in the Bitcoin world and in blockchain. I, I think you were probably pretty heavy into like, uh, so people were, you know, Bitcoin was successful, it was working, it was starting to get, you know, more recognition. But there were people, like I write about this in my book, like they were kind of like kicking the tires, I think is the way I put it, on Bitcoin to see if it could do more. Um, probably most prominently, Vitalik Buterin was doing that. But were you, um, so there were projects like Colored Coins where they were trying to, you know, yeah. you know yeah. add I mean, things to the, the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah. Yeah, what, yeah, so what was that like uh, from your side of the fence and, and looking at it as an investor and, did, did you, I guess, I'd love to hear if you saw Ethereum coming yeah. or, you know, if you thought this is just the beginning or what your thinking was like back then. Oh, it's, 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 a, it's a funny story and a bit of a sad story um, around that one. Um, it's, um, and I'm looking forward to being quoted on this sometime, but no, no one's really taken the bait yet. But <laughs> I famously missed Ethereum, um, and not just once, but a couple of times. 
And um, I say that because I really hope I learned my lesson on this one, which is that it's it's really easy to get um, too focused on one part of, or kind of like one narrative, right? And the narrative Mm -hmm. we had very early on in Pantera was that Bitcoin was going to win. And that was it, right? Yeah. But there wasn't really anything else. Like everything else was like a weird, like very bad copy of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You had like, you know, Litecoin. And, and MasterCoin or whatever. Yeah, yeah, there was MasterCoin and that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And then there was ColorCoin mm-hmm. and that was interesting. We had so these, these various different attempts at these things. Um, and there were so many attempts that after a while you were just kind of like, none of these seem like they're going to work. And we're looking for this like really great team that's going to come along um, and with the Ethereum team, I unfortunately didn't get to meet um, enough of the team to really kind of get a sense, or the right people in the team to get a sense of like what was going to happen there. Um, Who did you run across? Do you remember? Well, I didn't get. Chance, I mean, I'd, I'd known Vitalik from the early days, but I uh, didn't get a chance to, to chat to him as he was moving it out. It was Ethereum was like it was very hard, even after the launch had happened, to sort of see whether it was really going to work or whether something else was going to take its place. Um, and uh, it, it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, oh my God, how could you miss that? You were there at the right time. But, and it's, it's also, you know, <laughs> I feel like it's brave to admit when you miss something because yeah. you have to learn lessons from those things. Um, I love that. And then there was sort of a turning point for me um, when, uh, when he, actually weirdly, when ERC20 tokens started, then I was like, okay, now I get it. I can see you can do yeah. really interesting things now. Up until mm-hmm. that point, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know, like, what are we doing here? This isn't really a computer. It's not a world computer. It's just this mm-hmm. thing, you know, like it's just producing blocks. ELC20s came along, and then a lot of people were very skeptical, but I remembered that I'd been skeptical about Ethereum, and I was not skeptical at all. I jumped straight in and tried to understand it as much as I could and get deep into it. Yeah, and I, I remember that whole kind of paradigm made a lot of sense to me with an ERC where you could have a coin that a developer team created for that was needed for their protocol and that's how they could kind of monetize, right? Because if, if that coin was in demand, it would go up in value. And and there now, because it's it's interesting too, like I the economics of a blockchain system is very tricky. You know, I think that's one thing that Vitalik has um, always really dived, has, you know, is deep into is like the crypto economics of, of the whole thing because... Uh, it just from a outsider point of view, it's like where do you where do you monetize this thing? Um, and so, I, I, and I noticed with um, Orchid, you guys have your own coin, and I, I was curious if that was sort of and, and you need it for the protocol. Um, but is, was that or is that the mod? Like, did you kind of take that model from the ERC twenty uh, you know kind of days and and implement it with Orchid? Yeah, we did. Um... And initially, uh, initially OXT was, which is a coin, was required um, both for staking um, as part of the smart contracts that we used to uh, enable providers to come onto the network, um, and then also for payment in order to be able to pay for the resources in the distributed network. Uh, so Orchid is this is this network of distributed resources of providers and. You can pay for access to them. Um, there are a couple of different examples of this and, and more that we're working on. The first example we worked on was uh, VPNs, essentially like being able to send traffic, have it encrypted, have it wrapped if necessary and sent to another provider. So you can have these multiple hops um, mm-hmm. uh, in a similar way to Onion routing and networks. And, uh, and the providers receive payment. Now, over time, we realized that... Um, being able to pay in any currency was actually more interesting. And so then we extended this and said, okay, you can pay in any currency you want and providers can receive those currency. But um, for the economics network, it made more sense to keep uh, OXT as the sort of staking currency yeah. of the system. And so that's, that's the case still. Um, yeah, it's like the, we came at Orchid during the ICO period or around that time, um, sort of as ERC20s got going. Um and that was an interesting fundraising model in the sense that, uh, you know, Ethereum did arguably the sort of first, I think, I think maybe MasterCoin did the first one, um, but uh, Ethereum went on and did the big, most well-known of these crowdfunding things. Um, and then the, the mechanism there, which, which is interesting, was that 
you could sort of disintermediate a lot of the standard funding mechanisms. Um, we didn't do an ICO. We did uh, a private round, did a couple of private rounds, and mm -hmm. then launched after, I think it was about like two and a half years in, in the end of 2019, uh, just yeah. before COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those fascinating things, I think, about crypto is that it, it just helped reimagine these traditional functions of finance, but in a in a crypto way, you know, like the obviously raising capital is one of the most, you know, it's it's a foundation of everything. And here now you've got a crowdsourced way uh, with, with a coin offering. Um, and, and so you, you got into this a little bit, but I, I so Orchid is, it's a decentralized um, virtual private network. Um, t talk to me about why the decentralized part of that is important and, and where you see that fitting in these days because I'd like to get into kind of a bigger conversation about privacy and about, you know, how governments um, are trying, you know, maybe co-opting some of the crypto, you know, uh, innovations, um, CBDCs and, and other things. So, but I, I would love to start with like, why, why is decentralizing um, the VPN so important? Well, what's interesting about that is that um, we really saw, um, from the very beginning, we saw the potential um, for Orchid and the design that we had to do many different kinds of uh, of services. Um, so, um, but but it, but I have a I have a theory on building platforms, which is that you need to build something first. You need to like actually have one application before you ex extend it out to a service, and so. Um, it was a bit of a pipe dream as to one day we'd actually add other things. And recently we've started to add uh, some designs around storage and um, the team's actually working on some other areas around compute. Um, so on a more general level, why is it interesting to decentralize network services? Um, well, we could go back to the earliest days and do a history lesson around TCPIP and mail and other services, which are originally designed very much as decentralized architectures. Um, but, you know, that won't take a while. But <laughs> that, that is the origins of the internet, is, is very much a, a decentralized design, um, originally designed to withstand, you know, major catastrophes like a nuclear attack. Um, it, it's only in the, the period, um, kind of like, I guess, like this is the client-server period, if you like, of the, the, the mega-servers and the clouds that um, we entered this era where... Um, everything has become more and more centralized, um, really at the higher levels of the stack and the web stack and, and data parts of it and compute parts of it and just all these different areas. So when you look at the, the issues around centralization, you're really running into these ideas of um, you know, who, who's controlling the compute, who's controlling the, the network, who's controlling the, the storage. And... Uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the new area, one of the areas I've been looking very closely at, um, both at Orchid and, and in, uh, in my investing work, is, um, is this idea of around decentralizing AI. And so mm -hmm. kind of some of the challenges we have right now around um, the very strong power that's being, uh, being gained by companies like OpenAI or Google or Microsoft. Right. Um, and so I think that, on a more philosophical level, I'm very aligned to the idea of decentralization and why that's important for privacy, censorship, and just our ability to, to sort of you know, build the things and use the things that we want to do uh, in the future. And that is, you know, getting around or, or um, creating an alternative to those centralized points is, is almost like one of the foundations of crypto. Um, yet, as you described, a lot of Ethereum, for example, is is centralized in terms of like it's running on my, uh, Amazon Cloud, right? Um, so it's sort of, it almost kind of defeats the purpose. And I, I was wondering, just looking at kind of where we are today, if you think if we're losing the battle um, here to, to maintain that decentralization and to maintain a, a system that is resilient to those kinds of challenges. It's, 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 you do end up with these situations where you end up... Um, with strong economic drivers that push you towards 
centralization. And um, I think that there's a continuous kind of push and pull between centralization and decentralization. Um, and uh, as we design these systems out, we're hopefully making better decisions that get us to a more decentralized architecture. I don't know whether we're winning or losing. I, I hope we're winning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I saw um, a tweet that you liked or you agreed with. It was Jonathan Wu on Twitter. He said, um, it was a longer tweet than this, but th this was the last line. He says, crypto is sleepwalking into becoming one of the most brilliant surveillance tools ever invented. And he's, he's kind of getting at this idea that that there is too much centralization, that uh, central bank digital currencies would, would enable, you know, the surveillance of, of entire populations in terms of where you're spending your money. Um, and so, I mean, that's something that I'm really, I don't know, concerned is the right word, but it is something that I think it needs to be, um, we have to be vigilant about. And like when OFAC came against Tornado Cash, I thought that was quite a watershed moment where all of a sudden they're sanctioning uh, lines of code. Um, and so I guess that's that's sort of like underpinning my, my question to you about if we're losing the battle. I, I don't mean to make it maybe so dramatic, but are you are you optimistic about how, like, is there, are the good, are the good guys out there too? Like, are, are, I know that there are people that are trying to co-opt this and use it for their own means, but... Um, do, do you think the industry is up to kind of withstanding that? That's a great question. Um, certainly the, the long arm of uh, U.S. regulations or, or European regulations, now we have uh, some regulations in Europe too, um, can put people off um, mm -hmm. in terms of can put people off wanting to develop uh, code that... Um, would enable different levels of privacy. Um, certainly, Tornado Cash is a good example. Um, there are studies around how ineffective KYC ML really is at uh, preventing bad actors. Hmm. Um, and yet, we continue to roll it out and enforce it and make it more and more difficult for people to uh, onboard and to banks, crypto exchanges, and then potentially, you know, in the future, you're, you might have to KYC AML your wallet, you know, <laughs> Trezor, right? So yeah. it's, um, and then, of course, with the effectively like chain of custody that the blockchain enables, uh, it's possible to end up tracing uh, electronic money globally. So, yeah, I think it's, it's very challenging. Um, I've, rather than getting sad, I, I've tried to, <laughs> I do get sad, but I've tried to vote with, uh, vote with my feet, vote with, um, you know, the work I do and the vote with my investments. Um, I was an early investor in Zcash. I think we were the first, Pantera was the first institutional investor back before it launched. Um, I invested in MobileCoin a couple of years ago, which is going after another approach on Signal. Um, and I'm a, I was a very early investor in Risk Zero. I was building ZK proofs, which extends systems could revolutionize the way privacy works. Um, it, it's it's a constant sort of balancing act as well, which is difficult in the sense that they're very sort of compelling emotional arguments against privacy and against um, the kind of things that we should be concerned about. And we should be thinking about building. Um, and do you think it, it's, does it come down to yeah. convenience? Is, are people willing to trade convenience for a lack of privacy? Do you think in, in a lot of 100%. cases? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But we it's can also build applications that have these things as a default. And mm -hmm. um, Apple's rolling out uh, quantum-resistant encryption soon. So, like, there are there are some people really trying, you know, in, independent of working crypto or otherwise. Um, um, you know, a lot of these things, you know, the way we tend to think a lot of, a lot of issues around privacy is, is what's the attack model? Like, who, who's the threat? Like, who are you trying to hide um, or, or, or be private from? Um, when you end up in the level of a state actor, you, you, you have very little chance of being private from that person. Yeah. Um, but hopefully that's not everybody. Maybe, maybe that's 
but th- at the same time, as as, uh, as Snowden says, you know, you, you shouldn't have to be thinking about what you have to hide. That's the wrong question. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the fallacy of like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why should I yeah. worry about people knowing what I'm doing? Which is, you know, a very slippery slope. Yeah, and people use. Um, you get politicians throwing information around which isn't necessarily accurate. The Wall Street Journal ran a thing about uh, funding FMRs. And yeah, it's, I've it's got Elizabeth like, Warren here on the list here of things to talk yeah, to you about. <laughs> exactly. So, you, yeah, it came for one of her tweets. Um, it's, um, yep. it's, it's, you have to be careful to try and, you have to try and step outside of the political agenda and think bigger and think, what if, uh, the administration is, if I'm like really against the administration and, and anybody who's of a reasonable mind today would be too, like whichever side of the house or like you know, kind of how you think about it, you just end up with like a really bad person in charge of the country and then they've got these tools at their disposal. What do you do right. then? And you, you don't have to go far to pick your jurisdiction to see this in action today. And so again, this is, this is without having a political commentary on what's right or wrong or what, who's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's just, these are fundamental systems. Um, uh, my friend uh, runs the um, uh, Human Rights Foundation and they focus on, very simple, just trying to rid the world of dictators. Mm-hmm. Just, just that mission. And that leads to so many basic things which you have to focus on, including encryption and uh, privacy, communication. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Um, you mean, I, well, I was talking to um, Paul Brody the other day. He's the blockchain lead at, at Ernst & Young. And he was saying that a lot, of the, a lot of the clients that they're dealing with are building projects now to, to launch on like the public domain Ethereum net, but that they, they're incorporating zero-knowledge proofs into that to um, you know, maintain privacy of their transactions or they just don't want the public nature of the blockchain to get in the way. And I was curious if, you know, you think are zero knowledge proofs getting to the point where you think, you know, that could be a solution to help people um, mask, you know, or, you know, just have, have privacy um, sort of built in from the beginning? They've, they've certainly made rapid advancements. And, you know, like I said, I'll, I'll plug my friends at Risk Zero, um, who did a lot of work on building very scalable provers. Um, and then there are other people now who've rolled out other efficient systems. The, um, it, it, it's a it's a long way from where we were a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, it's really very promising. Um, and we're not at the stage yet that sort of any general purpose smart contract can be encoded that way. But um, we're getting to the point where we're able to build specialized applications which cover a lot of the use cases that we want. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a very hopeful area. Yeah. And, and it's interesting is that it's scalability that drove that. So it's actually like an economic driver because it's it's hard to motivate privacy. Like, it's like, but like security, like why, why would I go spend money on antivirus software? It's like, well, until something really bad happens, then you don't think about it. But privacy is even worse. Um, but the fact that it was motivated by scalability and now people are looking at as they look, again, as business applications, it's not so much individual transactions, it's business applications saying, I want to use this big network. I don't want to have to build my own one, but I want to keep things private. And you know, like big banks don't want all the transactions exposed. So there's, yeah. there's many reasons that are outside of like doing, you know, super shady secret coder kind of nefarious things that are not, that they have they have the right to be private. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great reasons to be private. With with Orchid, um, and I I read you you wrote back um, at the end of 2020 that you like the, with the pandemic you felt that people were going to sort of realize how how much of their lives you know are exposed um, on the internet and how that lack of privacy can be troubling. Um, I think you're spot on about that. And, and I'm just curious, a couple of years later, how do you feel? Uh, did, did, was that a wake-up call for folks, do you think? Or do you think there's more to be done? Or how, how are you thinking about that now? And what are you guys doing at Orchid to try to help that, you know, for people who want that protection? 
Um, so the pandemic was interesting. Uh, I remember um, uh, you know, KYCing into a um, into a clothing store in order no. to go use in order to go there. So we had to. It was in Berlin, and we had to um, scan the QR code that represented. Um, you know, our, our sort of travel status, our COVID vaccine status and all these things and basically register in order to go in. Um, yes. And this is a new level. And what was interesting about that period was how fast people were willing to just give things up, right? We have GDPR in Europe and everyone's like, yeah, we got GDPR, great, we can stop, you know, having cookies and we can choose the cookies we don't want, they're not going to track us. But meanwhile, we're like, you know, KYCing to go to the cinema. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, so there, there are well, yeah, differences Apple, digital tracking. Yeah, I mean, Apple had that app on the phone, right, where they yeah, were tracking they some, you to, to let you know in case you were near someone who was maybe positive for COVID. Yeah, right. So yeah, that was like, yeah, the, the, the lesson that. there, I think, was this, um, you know, obviously it was, it was extremely tragic, you know, for, for what happened during that period and, and it was so difficult for people. But the, the lesson around user behavior and how quickly people will just say, you know, this, this doesn't matter. I'm willing to sacrifice um, my privacy and hand it over to governments, corporations, administrations um, in return for safety or perceived safety. It was really fascinating. Right? It was like mm-hmm. interesting uh, um, how quickly people were willing to do that. Um, in many ways, the stakes have got higher recently with uh, with systems in AI and just also. So, like, I, I was writing this thing actually just before we kind of think I was about to tweet something. We we worried a lot about Instagram and Facebook. We had movies about it. Everyone talked about it. It's like own your own data, like all these things. And then people ran these experiments. They're like, okay, what if I actually have something where I compensate people for their data? And then it turns out that your data is actually not worth that much. It's it's really like on a on a you know monthly basis. It's really not that big a deal. Maybe you could buy some coffee with it. But an Instagram and Facebook came under so much fire for the what the practices and so on. And everybody wanted to opt out of these cookies here and there and everything. Where and I certainly like to have the ability to say where I'm being tracked and where I'm not being tracked. But ultimately, ultimately, I, I kind of like personalized ads. I think it's cool. Like I, I like the ads I got on Instagram, and I'm okay. I'm a, and I'm feeding an AI, right? It's like I'm sitting there. Instagram's a big AI. It's like I'm just feeding it. Hey, like I like this. I don't like this. I like this and others. But what I'm not going to do is get the last ten years of my email correspondence and give it to Instagram because I'm like, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to give me a slightly better ad? I don't really like. I'm not that interested. But I would do that to ChatGPT or something like it that I trusted, because once you start using those systems. It's so compelling and so addictive that you're willing to forget things. You're just like, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, it's like I'm, I'm just going to give up my privacy because this is amazing. And so when I talk about decentralized systems, when we're going back from the beginning, like I'm saying the stakes have got higher, I think it's even more important that we decentralize. And, and probably like it may be the time where we have the ability to explain what we're talking about because people can use it so easily and they kind of get it. And we haven't had some big abuse that we should be worried about yet, or we hopefully haven't. But you can kind of imagine how powerful um, uh, agents and LMs are going to be once they have that data about you. Um, so that would ideally be in the hands of um, people who you can trust or decentralized mechanisms or something where you can be sure you've got privacy. And there's a whole you know thread of things that go down there. So that's the it way is, I've um, been explaining it recently is just, because people get that, you know, it's the latest narrative. People get it. It's a very yeah. powerful thing. And, and speaking of that trust, is it? Are you um, speaking about the source of where you're pulling information from for a, an AI model is important, right? It's like kind of everything. And so, if if you could use blockchain technology to um, have a data set that was verified and was, uh, you know, authentic, uh, that that's a much better, you know, pool of data to be using for an AI model than just I don't know, random stuff that you can find on the internet that might be, you know, completely wrong or, or, or misinformation. Um, it seems like that's an early way that, that blockchain and AI could could kind of be symbiotic. Yeah, sure. So there's, uh, there's verifying models, there's verifying data. Um, 
And then there's aspects around decentralized compute, uh, whether it's for training, which is a, a different challenge, or whether it's um, for inference. Um, there's a sort of like permissionless compute uh, on the inference side, which um, Project Morpheus is working on on the, on the open source side. And there's a number of startups in this area. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely a, a burgeoning uh, area of discovery um, and, and you know, a small amount of investment is not going into this area and certainly a lot of excitement and hype around things. Um, so it's going to be, going to be an interesting, interesting couple of years in that space. And I think having this sort of perspective around it, um, something that, I, that, that myself have been looking at on my team is like around the idea of... Um, like there's, there's a new phrase, like this, this deep end thing, it's like decentralized, uh, you know, physical infrastructure. And it's, it's really reframing a lot of things that are not DeFi or not NFTs or kind of mm-hmm. not, not what we've been used to. Um, it's just what we need to, another acronym. Um, yeah, right, another one. And so, so I was on a, so a call and I was like, oh, so what's the deep end? And like, so what's the DRN? I was like, well, there's another thing. I, like, I, guess, I guess it's just a resource network. So if someone had another acronym I didn't know the answer to. Is that digital rights management, DRM? No, it's, it's like DRN is like a distributed resource network. But you end up with... Um, and it's good, you know. It's good, it's good to get people thinking about things and, and aligning around a concept and people to understand them. Um, well, yeah. But, so, what are you guys at Orchid? What are you doing in that way? I know you're working on some deep end projects, but then uh, going back, you know, the, the the decentralized VP, you know, virtual private network uh, is, you know, that's sort of foundational to you guys. But this this seems to be informing pretty much everything that that you're trying to to create. Yeah, so working on some ideas in Orchid, we've been uh, doing some experiments in storage and we announced some, uh, we, we wrote a research paper um, on a, a new kind of uh, coding called twin coding. So it's not new, we, we, we found it uh, in, in, in the deep past, <laughs> kind of found like some, some new applications for it. Um, but we innovated around uh, some ideas there and also some economic um, design ideas, um, which I think is interesting. Uh, we're now working with the community to build those things out. Um, so a little bit of a different approach to us. We started off back in the day of like building, building a network ourselves, and 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 then slowly rolling it out to open source. This time around, we're starting from an open source perspective and uh, welcoming people into that into the fold. There, um, we have also been working on some areas in AI and looking at uh, ways to do sort of decentralized inference and use um, the payment mechanism and the directory mechanism we have in Orchid to to support that. Um, again, there would be. Uh, you know, we, we we can we can wrap that into the the VPN network and, and add privacy in that, so you wouldn't know which IP address was necessarily asking for a certain prompt. Uh, you may give away other aspects of your privacy by by just telling it what you're doing. <laughs> so we can't help you there, but um, uh, you know we, we could we could we could shield different aspects of it, and at least it would be a decentralized approach. Um, uh, on a personal level, I've I've, I've rolled together a bunch of uh, kind of angel deals I've done over the last couple of years and I'm I'm spinning up a new fund um, that's going to be focusing on uh, the intersection of Web3 and AI and and, and, and both areas uh, in that sense. Uh, so that's going to be a new project for me um, going forwards in, yeah. in tandem with Orchid Orchid. I was reading up on Orchid and I uh, one thing that kind of jumped out at me was that you are you allow for micropayments, right? Using crypto, and so can you explain a little bit about that? Because I, I think people might understand it in, in a compared to like a subscription model where you pay upfront. But here, I think you guys are, are doing a different um, approach. Yeah, so you you can layer other payment designs on top of. Um, any kind of micropayment architecture. Um, so you could add subscription model too, but but the 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 trick is thinking about the payments and the services on the lowest level. Um, so when you're building uh, these these networks, which are providing services to people, um, one of the challenges is trust. So blockchains solve a lot of trust issues but they don't necessarily solve this one. And this trust issue is, if you're providing service, I'm supposed to pay you, but if I pay you up front, you may not give me the service, or you may be giving me something fake. Um, but if I pay, if I agree to pay you at the end, I may just walk away after taking what you gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there isn't really a solution around this, except to make the, um, 
the interval of payment and service small enough that you're like, it's okay. If you gave me stuff I don't like, I'll ask someone else. There's a network out there, I'll go ask them. So that ends up being to the point where you kind of want to reduce the payment levels to the packet level, which is what we do at Orchid. Um, so we make a packet very small and we say, let's just um, make this payment. Now, you can't get that to work on, on we certainly couldn't get it to work on Ethereum when we built it and L2s don't do it. Even the, the other fast blockchains, they don't, they don't do it either. Um, we need things at the packet level, like very, very small, very, very fast. And so what we did was say, well, as long as there's enough systems in the network, as long as enough people using this thing, as long as there's enough packets, you don't actually need to get actually paid. We can give you a ticket instead. And that ticket is like a lottery ticket. And so you can, as a provider, you can accumulate enough of these little lottery tickets that then you can say, I'm going to cash these in and win a prize. And that prize is effectively the expected value of what you would have been paid otherwise. So this, what we call probabilistic payment architecture, um, enables us to get those payments down very, very small and uh, very, very fast. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. That's sort of like... uh... Reminds me of like in a layer two where you're doing a lot of things off chain, but then you yeah. come back and it's and, kind of like a roll up or probably yeah, yeah, roll up. Yeah, that's great. So you are at Orchid. You're aiming directly at developers, right? You're saying to them, "Here are some tools you can use to make your protocol better or your app better, or whatever it is." Um, is that working out for you guys, or are there are are you also trying to target maybe I don't know bigger organizations or, or um, you know, foundations or things where it could, you know, it, or, or are you, are, is that really where you think like the, the most good could be done is by giving developers these tools that might not be out there right now otherwise? Yeah, so we've come at it from a few different directions. We, we built a consumer-facing app on the, the Orchid app and it's in uh, iOS, it's in... Uh, Android. I mean, it's like we went through that work of doing all the sort of app store things, which is not not nothing. Um, that app even has in-app payments, so you can you can pay directly with your your phone, um, which does a whole other architecture as to how that works and why it's still private and decentralized in, in different ways. Um, it's layered, <laughs> layered decentralization, um, and the. But the the app itself is really designed to. Um, provide a, a use case that shows people how you could use the rest of the technology. And increasingly, especially with the storage initiative, we're focusing on providing tooling and, um, and frameworks for people to use the network and, uh, and build out these things. Um, so we welcome people to come talk to us about um, applications they want to build with nanopayments, um, applications that they want to build uh, using storage or VPN. And, and we're, as I said, we're working on some compute components as well. Yeah. And I guess just lastly, um, having been around for for a while and seen a lot of things, uh, we we touched on regulation. It feels to me like maybe that's it's certainly an overhang. I think it's getting better. Um, I think the courts in the U.S. are um, providing some some sanity uh, in, into how regulators are, are approaching crypto. Just in general, what are you optimistic about where things are headed, or how, how are you feeling? Um, you know, just with with everything that's going on. I know. You mentioned before we were on that, that that you split your time between Switzerland and uh, Portugal, but it, is and, and how important I guess is is the U.S. in in this in this regard in terms of like what the regulatory sort of vibe is coming out of Washington D.C. Wow, the regulatory question. Um, I mean, it's 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 tempting to to hope and to think that. Um, these systems are so uh, global and decentralized that um, you can kind of ignore one jurisdiction or like the the jurisdictions that, con- that controls the reserve currency of the world. That's the US dollar. Um, That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. So, so, so they they have a they have a big say over what happens with um, finance um, globally. They really. They have like more impact, I think, than people realize. Um, so it's been unfortunate, and I, I've been tracking this since the early days of when we got involved in 2013. 
It's been unfortunate that um, it's been so unclear as to what the rules were and what the rules were not. Um, and I think certainly, uh, certainly more recently, in the last few years, the SEC seems to have engaged in a sort of more punitive approach mm-hmm. to um, enforcement. And I'm not alone in there are like, obviously, even within the SEC themselves, there are commissioners that disagree with different directions. And it is, it is a commission. It's, it's also important to remember that. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's, and this is a bit more controversial point of view, but on the other hand, a lack of certainty may, may have helped us in some ways and may actually still help us. Um, if you look at MICA, on the other hand, in Europe, which a lot of people are excited about, like, yeah, there's some clarity and so on. But there were some rules in there, which um, something around like self-custody wallets that could end up being far too restrictive. Um, the other thing that perhaps passed recently in Europe was a AI bill, which talked about um, kind of like things like number of parameters in the network and number of compute nodes in the network. And, and the the problem with these rules is that they are they become laws, and yeah. yet they're immediately outdated, and they're immediately um, they can yeah, immediately you, you can't really legislate technology, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's um, something. I think that you know one of the things that's a bit controversial in the sense is that the SEC says things like we already have the rules for how to apply what's the security and what's not a security. Um, and, but the, the problem is, is then, even though they do have these frameworks, they probably need some adaptation. Um, and they also probably need some mechanism, I think has to appear, so I've been talking about this, but the sort of safe harbor idea, um, or some understanding as to what it means to become, as, uh, as Himan talked about, sufficiently decentralized and so on. So there's just a lot of narrative back and forth that confuses people, it confuses investors, it confuses developers. And the danger can be specifically for the US, but also globally, that you end up with um, so much uncertainty um, that developers and investors decide that they'll go do something else. And there's less uncertain. And I've, I've heard people say that you know, in the last few years, just been like, this is just getting crazy, we've got to do something else. Yeah, I, I might not have heard that as much as just like we're leaving the U.S. You know, like we are yeah, we're going somewhere to um, continue our work. But but on the other hand, you have you have like your, your example with Tornado Cash and other systems, which were there's a, there's a long arm, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very long yeah. arm of the law, um, and that kind of situation. We we don't you know we don't know all the things that happened there because it, it sort of seems a very confusing case, but. It certainly put a chill down the spine of many people who are trying to work on similar ideas. Right. And other systems have recently shut down that were trying to do other privacy solutions. Yeah. I and I I mean, I've definitely heard that argument that Gary Gensler has made that that they feel like they have the tools. He says that. Um, but then you have to think, well, what if I'm what if my counterparty is a smart contract? Like how does that do you have rules for that? Like and clearly they don't. And and so I feel like that's just. I feel like they're they're very terrified of opening up um, this to Congress to to make these rules because you know there's a lot of people um, that, that might want to take some power away from the SEC or the CFTC or kind of combine the two agencies and there's a lot of turf war um, stuff that that goes back many years um, around these sure. agencies and that's that's where the politics comes in. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at the the, the, the quick way to understand for people who, who may not see why the government comes for us so hard is um, we're building technology applications, we're investing in them, that's trying to decentralize centralized structures of power and control. Yeah. And we're doing it in finance, we're doing it in investment, we're doing it in applications, we're doing it in enterprise systems. And so anyone whose job is to administer, as in government, is going to be threatened by that. And so it's like, it's a very simple, like, logical architecture as to why, why people don't like us. It's not because we're bad people. It's not because we're doing bad things. It's just like, 
we're here to try and decentralize things and people don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> we're in the yeah, business yeah. of centralizing. Yeah. You're, I mean, yeah, trying to create an alternative or, or you know, to, to create something that where I mean, you're no yeah, longer necessary. Other, other governments like Switzerland that are actually more of a decentralized design where there's more direct bureaucracy, they don't even have a president on a permanent basis. It's that they, they vote. It's a rotating president through the commission that, that runs Switzerland at any point in time. And, the, you know, they have Kutavelli, they have Zug, they have Zurich, they have like much more innovative solutions and they have a full framework for how to how to treat tokens. And it's okay. It's a framework. You have to go buy it, but you figure it out. Yeah. So I think yeah. a lot of it is cultural. You know? Yeah, for sure. Well, Seven, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks. much for sharing uh, all your insights and, and history with me. Um, tell people how they can find out more about you. You mentioned the Orchid app is out there in the uh, in the App Store and the and the Android Store. So everybody go out and get that. And then t- tell people how they can learn more about Orchid and, and about what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. So um, the website is very simply orchid.com. That's O-R-C-H-I-D.com. Um, we've got links to our Twitter and to our Discord there. Um, and uh, you know, if you, you find the Orchid Twitter, you'll find me, and you can follow me from that point on. All right. Well, again, thank you, Seven. Um, it's been a pleasure, and please uh, give my regards to Bella, and uh, good luck with everything you guys are doing. You're fighting the good fight. Next to me. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. Cheers. Okay. Bye. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and make sure to subscribe and rate us at Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Curtis Fritch, with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Ives. Mm-hmm.